The talk tonight is about the four Brahma Viharas. Metta, or unconditional love. Karuna, compassion. Sympathetic joy, mudita. And upeka, or equanimity. Now that you've tasted uh, all four, it's interesting to hear about all four in the context of all four. We can develop the presence of unconditional love and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity in our life. It is possible to develop these qualities. It's not that we're either born with them or we're not. And by hearing about them and tasting them and developing them, we weaken the presence of self-centered desire or grief or attachment, uh, attached joy or indifference. And we also weaken the presence of anger and cruelty, and envy, and reactiveness. So in the practice of them, we develop uh, certain wholesome qualities, and we weaken uh, the more painful reactions or going out of balance. It's helpful to understand the four Brahma Viharas in the context of being on retreat, but also for our life. The four Brahma Viharas are all about relationship. They're about a relationship to ourself. They're about a relationship to other human beings. They're about a relationship to celestial beings. They're about a relationship to all the unseen beings, all the animals, insects, reptiles, birds. It's it's not just a human-centered practice. It's really meant to be our relationship to all beings in the universe. There's a depth and a poignance to the power or the profundity of the teaching of the Brahma Viharas. And they're all about uh, an ideal conduct towards other beings. By uh, touching these Brahma Viharas on deeper levels, and we do that by developing more understanding of what they are, we start to balance uh, our care for ourselves with the care for other beings. By learning how to care for ourselves, we can extend that care to all other beings. All of the Brahma-viharas require understanding, and this is where they intersect the Vipassana practice. The Vipassana practice is about the development of wisdom. And in terms of each Brahma-vihara, metta, is this uh, unconditional love. And it, that means that 
that the love is purified with understanding. And the compassion is this openness to uh, the suffering and pain in this world. And the, the compassion is purified by the wisdom or understanding. Mudita is the ability to feel uh, joy and appreciate the happiness of others. And the, the understanding is what uh, purifies the mudita. The last one, equanimity, requires the deepest understanding. And it's understanding that purifies the equanimity. The, the equanimity is a deep balance of mind with the ups and downs of life, the joys and sorrows of life. And uh, on a deep level, it requires an understanding of karma or the laws of cause and effect. When we attempt to do these practices, we often find that they aren't as easy as we think. And they, we tend to see how they go in and out of balance. And when they go in and out of balance, that doesn't mean that that's wrong. You know, it doesn't mean that we have to feel badly about ourselves because they go in and out of balance. We just start to understand the difference between say, self-centered desire and metta, we start to understand the difference between grief and compassion. So the first, unconditional love. You've, you've heard all the near and far enemies, but I just thought I'd sum up uh, the near enemy because it looks like or feels like this unconditional love is lust or self-centered desire. It can masquerade for this unconditional love. But the, the self-centered desire or the lust is, is a love with conditions. And that's how we tell the difference. And then the opposite of this is anger. So often when we start to do the metta practice, we start to experience either the erotic love or the self-centered love or the wanting of it, uh, or we experience anger. Again, that doesn't mean that that's wrong. It means just that that isn't the metta, and we start to develop an understanding of what what metta is and what it isn't. With the metta practice, the person one starts with, which is supposed to be the easiest, is the benefactor. And if that person isn't easy, then we start with whoever is easy. Because it's, we, with each category, we're supposed to be starting with uh, what is easiest for us. In the compassion practice, the way it goes out of balance is uh, the, the masquerade, the near enemy for compassion, is grief or sorrow or pity. Because, again, it, it can feel so much like compassion. You can open a newspaper and, and read something really painful about something in the world, and you might go, oh, oh, that's so sad. It's, it, it, it's, one might start crying or feel this grief. That isn't compassion. It doesn't mean that that grief is wrong. It, it means that we can 
go through that grief and then see if we can touch the pain with this care. The opposite of compassion is cruelty, which speaks for itself. In that practice, we pick a person who's suffering a lot because it's supposed to be easy for us to uh, get in touch with the compassion for someone who's suffering a lot. Sympathetic joy or empathetic joy. We're supposed to pick someone who, when we think of them, a smile comes on our face. It's considered um, to be harder than compassion um, because there has to be some affection for a person to experience this sympathetic joy. And it's this wonderful feeling of feeling happy or uh, appreciating the happiness that someone else is experiencing or has experienced. The near enemy is attached joy. It feels like this mudita, um, but there's, there's a feeling of wanting to get something from it. The opposite is envy or jealousy. And the last, which you've been experiencing, uh, most of you have been doing some of, is upeka or equanimity. It will feel quite different than the first three. It's a very cool, sober, detached uh, evenness with the joys and sorrows of this world. It, it's a, the first metta is the foundation of an open heart. And then that openness of heart is oriented towards suffering and then oriented toward joy. And then uh, the equanimity is a deep balance with this openness of heart. The heart is open, uh, but one is in a deep balance with it. The near enemy of equanimity, because it, it feels or looks like equanimity, is indifference. And the opposite is reacting with aversion to pain and with attachment to pleasure. It's such an incredible concept, I think, for us in the West to be able to imagine feeling toward ourselves just like a mother cow would feel like for a newborn calf. You know, it's it's uh, extraordinary to understand that we can relate to ourselves like that. With, with a, you'd relate to yourself just like you were a newborn infant and be able to wish yourself that deeply well. And, and if one can do that really fully, that you can imagine um, 
how wonderful it is to be able to experience that for someone else. And, and this is the fabric of life. You know, this is how life is held together. It's, it's, uh, it's just like a fairy godmother giving, you know, a blessing, like sprinkling uh, one or others with this golden dust of love. And I think of it as a, like a moisturizer. Uh, I have particularly dry skin. I have the 80 million year old hands here. And <laughs> so, uh, not a perfumed moisturizer, but <laughs> an unscented moisturizer uh, <laughs> with the incredible pervasion of metta <laughs> in the scent. And it's possible in our daily life to put on this moisturizer every day when we wake up. You know, just think about if everyone in the world just, you know, when they woke up, did five minutes of metta for themselves, never mind anyone else. You know, it's just as important as brushing our teeth or brushing our hair or eating. It's a nourishment that we forget about and that's so important and that we have to learn it. It's not something that uh, you're born with and then you can't learn, Uh, but it's something that's so hard in our culture because we haven't learned it. And it's hard, no matter how old we are, to start to learn it when we didn't get that, um, so much of it when we were children. So we really have to kind of go out of our way, in a way, to develop it. There's a kind of melting of the heart that happens in doing the metta. So often when we start to do the metta practice, maybe we don't feel anything. And we maybe feel numb, or maybe we feel angry, or uh, maybe we feel dead. And that can be, it's like, um, as we start to melt it, the more we're going to feel. And sometimes we don't like that, that as we start to melt the heart, you know, that we actually are experiencing more of life, whether it's pleasant or painful. In the process of doing metta, the more we discover what it is. In the West, we often want to understand something before we do it. Uh, But I found that as I kept doing it and keep doing it, my understanding of it and what it is keeps deepening. And my commitment to strengthening it keeps deepening the more I discover how important it is. Long ago, I found a, a beautiful book And in it, there was a poem that said, learn to love everything. And I don't remember all the details of it, but I remember the first lines were, learn to love the rough and the smooth day and night, flowers, snow, you know, mountains, valleys, however you might imagine, uh, all the 
pleasure and pain that's possible in this human world. One of my uh, favorite teachings was at the end of a three-month retreat um, in 1978. A Zen teacher named Sansanim came here during uh, what we call Integration Week or Disintegration Week. And he said, what is love? Well, actually, that isn't what he said. <laughs> somebody, somebody asked him, what is love? That's right. Somebody asked him, what is love? And he said, what is love? And then somebody asked again, the same person, what is love? And he said, what is love? And then for the third time, for the proverbial third time, the person said, what is love? And he said, what is love? And it was it. You know, it was like he mirrored something very deeply in that moment. And I think that uh, in terms of a lot of the Asian teachers, we often want to get words that we'll understand. But there's really a transmission on a different level. And the quieter we are, the more we can pick up the transmission that's happening without words. Uh, So he was just mirroring what love was, which is just being there, (laughs) being a mirror. And it's like the question, you know, what is it that we love, is very important, especially around the near enemy, because you know, I remember when I was first doing the metta practice and I was really wondering, well, what is it that I love? <laughs> you know, and, and do I love greed, hatred, and delusion in a person? You know, what, it, what is it, in a, you know, what is a person? And what is it that we love in a person? And is it just pleasure that we love? You know, are, are, is it the moments that we experience pleasure with a person and it, usually that's what we limit it to. And then when we get to know the person after a while, and that we see that they're unpleasant too, that nobody can be pleasurable all the time, even though we might try. Uh, you know, and these questions are important. When I was in Switzerland this year, a very old man asked me what a courageous heart was. And he had just gone through experiencing the death of someone he loved a lot. And it's, you know, to me, a courageous heart is this kind of deep love that, that loves more than pleasure. You know, that can really be there with all the aspects of a person or a being, not just the pleasurable parts. But this actually takes courage. It's not easy. And it's helpful to see, you know, what it is we're conditioned to love. I think a lot of the time we love love. You know, we want, we're wanting unconditional love. And we call that love. Uh, And it's actually a, a quite a fragile world we live in most of the time where we're wanting, um, acceptance and unconditional love from others. Uh, 
And it's not such a dependable world when we're so dependent on that from others. Ultimately, if we take a look at ourselves in Vipassana, we'll realize that maybe human beings aren't so perfect. You know, and we're wanting this unconditional love from others, but human beings do have greed, hatred, and delusion, and they're not always so dependable, even though we want them to be. So what is very dependable is strengthening the metta for ourselves. And it's not that we don't need or want that metta from outside of ourselves, but we become less dependent on it the more we can experience it for ourselves. So there's, a, there's more ease in letting go of control the more we feel this strength of metta within. So if somebody is feeling aversion toward us rather than unconditional love, uh, we're not going to fall apart because we can feel it for ourselves. We might not like it, <laughs> uh, but we learn to let go of control and let it be okay. That's part of metta. We let the other person have the aversion, and we don't need them to yield this metta all the time. There's a great poem by Mary Oliver. Once only, and then in a dream, I watched while secretly, and with the tenderness of a caring woman, a cow gave birth to a red calf, tongued him dry, and nursed him in a warm corner of the clear night, in the fragrant grass in the wild domains of the prairie spring. And I asked them. In my dream, I knelt down and asked them to make room for me. Our hearts can be a place that um, all beings want to have a room in for a while when we develop that metta. And it's a great gift that we can give to the world. It's like a a shelter or, or a blessing. In the practice of metta, we start to learn that we can to re- we can learn to relate to ourselves and others with tolerance, with acceptance, with forgiveness, with gentleness. When we do the metta practice and we have an experience of the power of the f- first category, the benefactor. Uh, Sometimes it can help motivate us to be benefactors for others. And this, it doesn't mean that it's a big commitment. It can mean taking an interest in someone. And it could be taking an interest in someone in a grocery store or taking interest in someone on a bus in a few moments. It doesn't uh, require a 10-year 
a drudgery task. Uh, so we can do that. We can make a long commitment to someone, and that's really a wonderful thing to do, too. Uh, but we can see ways in which we can develop this kindness and interest in someone just in a few moments that, that really affects people deeply. It's any moment of genuine care that we feel for someone. One of the most uh, powerful examples of this in my life was when I was a, in high school and I worked two jobs. I worked a, as a waitress uh, for long hours in the day and then I rewarded myself by being an usherette in an outdoor uh, theater with people like Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Wonder and the Supremes at night. I didn't get much sleep <laughs> because one job started about five in the morning and the other job ended at about two in the morning. But I had fun with the second job. And one time I was a uh, there was a man named Hugh Masakila from South Africa who's a great trumpet player, was playing for a week. And I uh, was standing, my little etherette, <laughs> in the aisle when he would uh, come down. And he used to come early and talk with me. And it was the first time in my life that a man had taken an interest in me in a way that uh, was pure. Later, I found out that he's the type of person who takes great interest in helping teenagers and, and does plays in New York and productions in New York for, for with teenagers doing all the work. Um, and it, this is an example of someone who didn't make a long commitment and didn't know me at all. But the effect was extraordinary. You know, it was like, oh... <laughs> Somebody's interested in me, and it made a huge difference in my life. And I'd really like to encourage you to do that for other people. Uh, it makes a difference. This culture we live in is a kind of um, desert, and we need to be. Uh, oasises at times for people, if we can. The Brahma Viharas have a way of translating into our life that's very creative. You know, you can do them anytime, anywhere. I like to do them when I am waiting. You know, when I'm in situations where I'm waiting, because I tend to be impatient. And I'll get this feeling like I'm wasting my time. And my, my most, uh, the place I experience that the most is in traffic in Honolulu. And they're in this endless, it seems endless process of fixing the one road that goes around the island. You know, there's only one road, you know, that goes around. And it's this huge highway now. And it's, you know, a huge mess. Uh, and any way I have to go out of my house, uh, I have to go on this road that has been being worked on for five years on Hawaii time. Uh, and an example of the need for patience is that, you know, it's a different system than we have here. It's more third world in a way. And um, 
one might be trying to get somewhere downtown, for example, and plan on the usual 15 minutes, but it takes an hour to get through this backlog. And I'll be waiting there wondering, you know, what they're working on now. You know, waiting, it's all coned. You wait for an hour in the hot, you know, you cook in the car and cook and cook for an hour. And I'll get up there toward where, you know, <laughs> it's supposed to be being worked on. And they'll be taking this lunch break, you know, <laughs> for hours. You know, they're just hanging out, having a good time. I'll be like, I can't believe they never do this in Massachusetts. You know, I get really <laughs> angry that they make us, you know, get in these traffic jams for an hour or two. And they're just like the Samoans in the mall. You know, they're just hanging out, you know. They would never think of taking the cones down, you know, <laughs> so that you can, you know, like move the, move the cars. It's, it doesn't even enter their head, you know. So in those situations, I find that I can either be incredibly irritated, you know, from a Boston mind state, or I can learn to do metta. And once I make that transition, you know, because you can just see, you look around and you see people in their cars and they're hot, you know, the sweat's dripping off their face unless they have air conditioning. And it really is a long wait. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Uh, and we all are needing metta in that circumstance. And the shift, you know, when I look at my face in the mirror, you know, waiting, waiting, tense, tense, you know, <laughs> freaking out, I'm late, I'm late, to, oh, may we be happy, you know. <laughs> it's incredible. It's just, and I've, I really get out of that state where I think I'm wasting time. And, you know, you're, you probably aren't experiencing these kind of things at this point. <laughs> uh, but when you go out there, there's many instances, even if it's waiting for an elevator. You know, there's so many places in life where we just kind of are waiting in line at a grocery store. There's places where we wait, uh, and we just kind of, what do you do with those spaces? But those are the places you can pick someone and do mudita, or do equanimity, or do compassion. Any places where one is afraid, there have been some shark attacks in Hawaii in the last year or two, and when I go swimming, I try to send metta to the sharks. There's little things uh, in our life where you might notice some fear with some being, it's possible to do metta, and it really can shift the energy. The most important thing to remember is to do what's easy for us. <clears throat> so for me, when I start the morning, I like I love birds, and sending metta to birds is very easy for me. So I have a bird feeder, and I start the day by feeding the birds and sending them metta. It's so easy. You know, sometimes I think we think that if something's not hard, we're not going to get a lot of benefit out of it. Uh, but you know what it's like to go out and feed the chickadees and how light it makes the heart feel. And that has a great power. 
And please try to remember, you know, when you go out to your daily lives, that try to find something daily, day to day, that's easy for you to send metta, and stick with it, um, because it's easy to forget to do it. And if you find one thing that's easy, it'll be so uplifting, you'll remember. Compassion, or karuna, is a little bit different than metta. And sometimes it takes uh, some time before we understand the difference. It's called the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. And the compassion uh, means that there's a willingness to experience pain. There's a willingness to open to pain and to touch it. And this could be pain, emotional pain, or physical pain inside our body, or or in other people's bodies, or other beings' bodies, difficult emotions. There's so much pain in this world. When I went to give a talk at... uh, the Cambridge Meditation Center, Insight Meditation Center, earlier this fall, every question that people asked me was about how to deal with the suffering in the world. It was interesting, you know, that every single question uh, was about that. And it's like the second we open a newspaper and you just get any sense of you know, the amount of unimaginable pain in this world, whether it's war, or poverty, or hunger, or abuse, or torture, or the environment. Or if you look at history, if you look at the history of cruelty or suffering in this world, even if you just focus in on children, never mind adults, This isn't an easy practice. It's not such an easy shift to go from the metta to compassion. I remember when I shifted from metta to compassion, I felt like my heart like was on the ground. (laughs) At first, it was like it was just too much pain. And it was overwhelming the first few days of doing it until I found what, what it was about, which was finding this place of touching the pain not drowning in it, and not moving too far away from it. So if you tend to be a person who moves away from pain and is very detached, it might be helpful to really try to move deeply into the pain as a balance. If you're a person who tends to get too caught, involved in it, and drown in the pain, it's helpful to remember to come out of it and kind of look at it from the outside. We tend to do both. We tend to move too far away, or we tend to go into it too deeply and drown. And the, the balance is just this ability to touch it. With this, it's a pleasant feeling of care. And I know for myself that whenever I do open Newsweek or Time, and I, you know, it's just like, 
you just think they could even do a third of it good news, you know, even if they could do a quarter of it good news, it would help balance it, but it's usually all bad news. If I start, usually I read those magazines on a plane, you know, and it's just sort of, I can feel myself getting heavier and heavier and heavier as I read it. And then I remember, wait a minute, you know, I either stop, you know, it's like usually we go on overload and the heart closes. So it's, it's important to find our limit and, and just find a bit and see if we can, maybe we go into the heaviness of grief or maybe we move away and then just see if you can find this ability to touch it. Whether it's physical pain in the body, emotional pain in ourself or in other beings. You know, the freedom isn't necessarily just going into it deeply and drowning. It's, it's finding a balance of this just touching it with care. One of the ways that um, the traditional phrases are translated are, may you be free of suffering. And when I would do that, I would find myself move too much into aversion to the pain. So for, for a lot of the time, I would switch the phrase to, I care about you, or I care about the pain. And I think that that line between having aversion for pain versus being able to wish one to be free of suffering without aversion, you know, with the understanding. We want, you know, you're wishing somebody to be free from suffering, but not out of aversion. And, and this is, really can get subtle, and it, it isn't so easy. We might be able to do it once or twice, um, but it's to know that we will go out of balance. It's okay. We learn how to experience metta by going out of balance. We learn how to experience compassion by going out of balance. And it's almost like we need to have the willingness to experience the grief, the indifference, the lust, the anger. That's part of the heart melting. So with compassion, we start to find a deep love for ourselves that includes the pain. And there's something really joyful in that as we start to see that we like to present an image to the world, or we're taught to present an image of ourselves to the world that's really pleasant and acceptable. And as we start to do the Vipassana practice or the compassion practice, we start to see that we can really care about the pain and love that part of ourselves, and we no longer have to be split apart. And there's a great, um, deep love that comes out of this, a very deep joy. I had lunch with Aiken, Aiken Roshi this year, um, which is a real blessing for me. He's a Zen teacher in Hawaii, and I usually have lunch with him once a month now. And he told me that uh, 
Kuan Yin, who's the Bodhisattva of compassion, one of the translations for Kuan Yin is listening. Just listening. And it's like she's listening to the cries of the world. So if you think of compassion, you know, you might think of this way of describing it, which is listening, listening to the cries of yourself, listening to the cries of this world, and then responding with care. There are so many opportunities in this world to do this, you know, to transform our awareness of suffering into this compassion. And it's actually a wonderful feeling. You know, the, the joy is this um, transformation of the suffering in this world into this pleasant feeling of care. It's, it's radical. <laughs> You know, it's, it goes against the ego. The, uh, you know, our two biggest tasks of transforming suffering into wisdom, transforming our awareness of suffering into compassion. time of the retreat when it gets toward the end and I hear the sound of the heat, I always get this sort of sad feeling because <laughs> I, love, I love that sound. It's like a symphony in here. Uh, mutita is so much fun. And it's a real nice change after compassion. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, just to feel the quality of even moving from metta to compassion and then mudita, it's like I have to kind of, it's like a big shift and it's like, oh, all of a sudden here we are, may our happiness and our success never end. And it's so, um, you know, euphoric. It's wonderful. Uh, and there's a, it's like there's a balance we need here that the Buddha is teaching. There's a balance of opening to suffering, but we need to open to joy and happiness, too, that that's as equal a practice and important a practice as the opening to pain and touching pain is to touch happiness. And this is something that is rare in this world, rare in our culture. And if it feels like maybe the hardest for you, I would do it the most. Or if it feels the rarest for you, I would do it the most. When we choose to try to work with this one, I think that there's a tendency to think that we need to wish it or feel it for someone who's done something extraordinary. You know, like maybe they buy a new house or maybe they wrote a book or, you know, it just seems like 
in our culture, somebody has to do something so dramatic to feel like they're worthy of this mudita. But it's not like that. It's like when I come in to IMS and I experience everyone here practicing, you know, just to imagine the joy of people in doing the practice, you know, the joy of transforming all the pain into wisdom. You can focus in on any person here and feel the mudita that we're, we're here, that person is here and doing the practice. To be able to walk on this earth and say to yourself, may my happiness never end. We know that it's going to end at times. It's not, it's like you say in compassion, may you be free from suffering. It's not that you don't know that that person isn't going to have suffering in the world. So we're wishing the freedom from pain, uh, but without the aversion and with the understanding that life has joy and sorrow. And when you say, may um, your happiness and success never end, it's just that real wish for the happiness, to, for the person. The real meaning of mudita is to wish that the person appreciate their joy and sorrow. I mean, they appreciate their joy and happiness or success. So sometimes that isn't explained in detail, and that helped me a lot when I understood that. I have a friend in um, uh, on Maui. We don't have a way to get to other islands in Hawaii except by airplane. You know, you can't take a boat. So I have a friend on another island that I don't get to see very much, and she loves to dress up. and. Uh, She's very feminine and loves to dress up. And this particular time of her life, she has four children and has a a hard job. And she didn't have any money for months. And she she came over to visit me, and and she had saved up enough money to buy this lipstick. And so she got off of the airplane, and I picked her up. And she was so happy. You know, and it, it was really interesting because I have the conditioning to think, oh, lipstick, so what? You know, big deal. You know, and it was just like her happiness was so great. It cut through my judgment, you know. And I was just so happy for her, you know. And it, she had gotten this new kind called berry. <laughs> and it tasted good. She's a, you know, sensuous type, you know. And I'm the aversion <laughs> Yeah, so here, here we are, big deal lipstick, and she's, oh, it's berry, it tastes good. And, and it's, it was really nice for me. Again, you don't, this doesn't mean it has to be this great thing. You know, it can be this moment of just feeling happiness for their happiness. And especially, we might have judgment about what other people experience happiness for, um, but that, that doesn't matter. It's, it's just this sweetness of feeling the happiness. The other um, side of mudita, the opposite, which is envy, 
or jealousy. Uh, I just wanted to share an experience I had years and years ago, which taught me a lot about jealousy. Was uh, I was in a relationship with a man where he got involved with the other woman, uh, and we had split up. And it had just happened, and we all sat a retreat together. And they sat next to each other in front of me. And I was, <laughs> I was sitting a couple rows back, you know, trying to keep my eyes closed. <laughs> I was just feeling, you know, this incredible jealousy. I'd never experienced jealousy like this in my life before. It was so painful, and I kept feeling like I shouldn't be feeling it. And I kept resisting it, kept resisting it, and feeling like I was terrible for feeling it. And, you know, finally, you know, that great line, maybe I better try accepting this, you know, <laughs> happened, you know, maybe I better try learning how to work with this, happened. Uh, and it was a really huge teaching for me. Because I saw that when I, I saw that I, what jealousy was, that I thought that this woman was better than me. And when I could just let that feeling come and go and allow the jealousy to come and go and started to be able to disidentify with it and let it be just like a cloud coming and going or the breath coming and going, underneath it, I found my own goodness. It's like I found my own worthwhileness by letting the jealousy come and go. And when I couldn't do that, when I felt identified with a jealousy and aversion to it, uh, I felt really like I was no good. So I found there was a real relationship between ex- being able to experience the jealousy, which we all do, and let it come and go. It's said that sympathetic joy, or mudita, gives to equanimity the mild serenity that can soften its unmoving appearance. Mudita gives to equanimity the mild serenity that can soften its unmoving appearance. So there's metta, karuna, mudita. The last is equanimity. that uh, cool feeling. When I moved from mudita to equanimity, I felt like I was crashing from heaven. You know, I was just, for you know, weeks doing mudita to this kind of, you are the owner of your actions. It was like, my first thought was, uh-oh. <laughs> do I really have to do this? It was so... Uh, so big a change, and I, several people have mentioned this to me, that it was really different because it didn't feel like they could send it out. Uh, it, it wasn't the same feeling, and it, it, it's like one has to go deep inside, and it's a detachment. It's a, it's a letting go. It, it, it doesn't have the same quality of the first three at all, where the first three will feel like this incredible connection, uh, the last will feel like a um, sober, cool, quiet, deep 
things are just as they are. There's joy, there's sorrow, there's neutral. And it doesn't mean, you know, that we're disconnected or that our heart is closed. It means that the heart is open, uh, but balanced. And sometimes this is, you know, it's really the hardest for most people because we can't, we can't fake the acceptance of the joy and sorrow. You know, it really requires uh, these moments of deep understanding with the equanimity. The near enemy, indifference, it's, it's, a, it's a form of denial. And denial is very powerful in this world. It's apathy. It's a non-responsiveness. It, it leads to being passive and not being able to take action. And so what's most important with this last one is that we understand that equanimity doesn't mean passivity. And most of the world misinterpret this aspect of Buddhism. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't take action and change things. So if we see a starving person, a spiritually mature person, um, would be touched by that suffering and be called to take action. And if the compassion is balanced with equanimity, we do this action, but we're not overwhelmed by grief and we're not overwhelmed by action, but we are able to take an action with a balanced response of care. So the equanimity helps balance the compassion. And then the other way that people misinterpret equanimity is that they think it means that we're saying that, you know, cruelty and horror are right. You know, that's not, that's another misunderstanding. It's not passivity and it's not saying that cruelty in the world is right. It means that if we can have this deep balance of understanding that things are as they are, that that understanding allows us to live in this world and make it workable. That instead of getting overwhelmed or indifferent, you know, that we stay open but balanced and we can respond to suffering with care. And this is, this is the hardest one to understand because it requires an understanding of karma or kama. And karma is any willed action. It's, you know, an action with intention. It's an action of the body or speech or the mind. And karma is the potential ripening of the fruit, or it means stored potency. And so when the conditions ripen, uh, that's the potential ripening of karma. So if we see a starving child, um, we can figure that there's a bad God or that there's an evil universe or that the child is bad or we can understand that things are as they are and that there's some law of cause and effect happening but that it's not about punishment or blame. 
And the Buddha said that to try to understand karma would drive us crazy. And that's really important. You know, it's not that we try to take every unpleasant thing that happens to us and try to figure out that, well, maybe I murdered somebody in my last life and that's why I'm having this pain in my knee. You know, <laughs> that's pretty simplistic and I don't, I don't think it's so helpful for us. And especially coming from a Judeo-Christian background, which most of us are from, um, we can get really heavy with our understanding of karma. And we take our previous conditioning around punishment and reward and, and turn this teaching into one of doom and gloom. And my understanding of it actually, and in the teachers that I've been around that seem to understand it the most deeply, is that the heart becomes much lighter. You know, it's meant to... Uh, uh, it's like it's just being able to hold the mystery of the, the unimaginable range of joy and sorrow in this world uh, and hold it with a lightness uh, that isn't swinging uh, with this opposite of equanimity, incredible aversion toward the suffering and incredible attachment to the joy. Someone asked Henry David Thoreau on his deathbed. His aunt actually asked him, have you made peace with God? And he answered, I didn't know we had quarreled. Equanimity requires us to take a wider view. And it's much bigger than our little perspective. You know, the spiritual world is vast. And if we can even imagine lifetimes, uh, we can realize that we've been everything. We've been worms, we've been snakes, we've been sharks, we've been devas, we've been humans, we've been everything, everything imaginable. And if we don't believe in lifetimes, well, we can at least see that in one lifetime we can access, you know, the times where we feel like we're in heaven, and the times when we feel we're in hell, uh, and the times when we feel we're in between. Uh, And hopefully, we can hold these four Brahma-viharas, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, uh, with a balance of this deep care and love and also detachment. They're very practical for us in our life, and it's possible to be very creative with uh, the ways in which we apply them and practice them. When Deepama was here, this uh, teacher that a lot of us had from Calcutta, she used to have us do metta with a picture of ourselves. You know, and so it's possible to do 
or any of these practices at home with pictures. You know, it's like <laughs> there's so many ways in which we can do these practices. I'd like to end with a poem by Philip Booth called How to See Deer. And this is for the deer right now in this kind of painful period of hunting season. Or agonizingly painful period of hunting season. How to see deer. Forget roadside crossings. Go nowhere with guns. Go elsewhere your own way, lonely and wanting. Or stay and be early next to deep woods, inhabit old orchards. All clearings promise. Sunrise is good and fog before sun. Expect nothing always. Find your luck slowly. Wait out the windfall. Take your good time to learn to read ferns. Make like a turtle, downhill towards slow water. Instructed by heron, drink the pure silence. Be compassed by wind. If you quiver like aspen, trust your quick nature. Let your ear teach you which way to listen. You've come to assume protective color, but now colors reform to new shapes in your eye. You've learned by now to wait without waiting. You've learned by now to wait without waiting, as if it were dusk. Look into light falling, in deep relief, things even out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.